In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. The path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be with you, and I hope that um, this series has been encouraging to you, um, that it's more than just you leave and think, oh, well, that was a nice thought, that was a nice sermon. I hope you think that, but I hope it's more than that, and I hope that over time you find yourself being drawn to prayer a little bit more frequently or wanting to learn to pray, and that's part of the reason that we're doing this series, looking at great prayers of the Bible, because They're there to help us learn how to pray, not just to teach us something, but to instruct us in prayer. And one of the quick ways, one of the easiest ways you can do that is to pray through these prayers uh, during your week. Take this home with you. Um, Pray through it slowly. Meditate on it, even just once this week. Uh, Also, if you've noticed, uh, we're on Psalm 9. As we read the Psalms uh, each and every week, we're going from 1 through 150. It'll take us a while, but we're only on 9. So if you want to catch up, uh, you can pray through each of those psalms in the next couple of weeks and then follow along. Uh, the psalm, it, psalms are the prayer book of the Bible, and reading through them, praying through them is one of the ways to, one of the best ways to learn to pray. So I hope that this will be not just an informational sermon series, but also inspirational. It will draw you into a deeper relationship, a conversational relationship with God. So let's, um, let's pray to that end about this morning as well. Father, we look to You and we, we pray that You would meet us. And God, I pray that wherever we're coming from, whether we are believers, whether we have been followers of You for quite some time, or whether we have significant doubts, we are wavering in our faith, we're wandering, we have significant reasons that we don't want to follow you, or maybe we're just not yet ready to call ourselves Christians. Wherever we are coming from, certainly what binds us together is that we're looking for peace, that all of us want peace, not just the cessation of actual warfare and violence in our world, but the cessation of anxiety, the beginning of hope in our hearts internally, that we would have a reason to live more than just putting food on the table and making it to the next day. Father, I pray that Your peace would settle upon us and that You would give us rest, that we would find a peace of Your coming shalom in our daily lives this week and even today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1985, Vaclav Havel had recently been released from prison, and he would later, of course, be the first president of the Czech Republic, as well as a renowned writer and playwright. But at the time, he had just come off serving numerous prison terms for protesting uh, totalitarian communist rule in his country. And he was captivated by this idea of where is hope to be found, especially in places like prison, as he had served in places of darkness, as the Czechoslovakia had been under totalitarian rule. And he has this to say. He says, the kind of hope I often think about, especially in situations that are particularly hopeless, such as prison, I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. Hope is not a prognostication. It's an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. I feel that its deepest roots are in the transcendental. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good and not just because it stands a chance to succeed. The more unpromising the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper that hope is. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. In short, I think that the deepest and most important form of hope, the only one that can keep us above water and urge us to good works, and the only true source of the breathtaking dimension of the human spirit and its efforts, is something we get, as it were, from elsewhere. There is peace to be found, Havel is saying, Isaiah is saying, but you have to know where to look. And this prayer that we read, this psalm is a psalm of hope. And you see that in the very first first verse where he says, in that day. In that day we will sing a song. There's something yet to come in Isaiah's experience, in Isaiah's reader's experience, and in fact in our experience, even these many hundreds of years later. In that day. And we can get on board with that, this idea that something is yet to come. Let's hope so, right? But verse 7 seems a little bit too over-realized. It seems a little bit too imminent. The path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. Does that sound like your experience? Does that... your sort of feel of the world, that things are smooth and that your path is level? Well, it doesn't sound like mine either, and it wasn't the experience for Isaiah's readers. He's trying to connect them with a hope, with a peace that transcends their daily experience. Isaiah is trying to get his readers, exiles, people for whom life hasn't gone very well, to look beyond their circumstances to a horizon of time in which their hopes in the present day will be vindicated. Now, notice that the entire prayer takes place in the future. 
he's saying that this is a prayer, this is a song or a psalm that we will pray and sing in that day. Okay, so the obvious question then is when? When is this day? And this day for Isaiah is very, very specific. And it's a very specific concept concept throughout the Old Testament that there is a coming day when God's rescue will finally come. And it will come in the form of the Messiah. Whenever you read through the Old Testament, whenever you read in Isaiah and it talks about this day or that day, or the day of the Lord. That's what he's talking about, this coming day of peace, this coming day of shalom. That's the day of the Lord. And Isaiah is saying, and what the Bible writers are saying, is live in such a way now that that future reality bleeds into the present, that you express in living that hope that you have, that you become convinced that you will be singing that song in the future, and you can begin to express it and begin to live out that hope now in your present reality before circumstances change. So we've asked when, but how? How can Isaiah honor this difficulty of life as it is while saying, yet, trust, hope, believe, have faith? And here, we bumped up against the very essence of faith, right? This is the very challenge of any type of spirituality, but particularly we're talking here about Christianity. This is its very essence. And time and time again, we've seen in this series that prayer is a way of pulling back the curtain on our reality and peering into the future that affects us now in such a way that that reality transcends the pain and the suffering of life. I don't mean that it makes it go away, and it certainly doesn't diminish it at all. But there's a way, prayer is the way in which we connect with a God who is saying, there is a coming day so wonderful and so transcendent, it is so much better than the pain is bad. This is an eschatological psalm or song. And this is where Havel's statement, as profound as it is, is missing something. And he actually admits it elsewhere in this essay. He says, unlike Christians, he can't speak of the transcendental and therefore cannot say that things are going to turn out well. Isaiah is saying that they will. In that day, we will all sing this song. There is reason for hope. There is reason for peace because he knows that something from elsewhere that Havel spoke about. Havel can only speak of it as an abstraction. But it's not an abstraction. It's not a something. But Isaiah said it's a someone. Two weeks ago, we looked at Job. And we made three observations about that text. One is that life is perplexing. We all can agree with that, wherever we are spiritually in this room. Secondarily, that life is hard, that life is difficult, but that the hope of Job and that the hope of the Bible is that you are not alone. 
in the midst of perplexment, in the midst of the difficulties of life, that you are not alone. And then last week we looked at Psalm 139. And what the psalmist was saying is that there is nowhere that I can go away from God. And at first, it was very threatening. It was scary because there's nowhere that he can go to escape from God's penetrating gaze. But upon further reflection, he realized that wherever I go, God is there and his upholding hand will be there. Now today, the very first, first verse, we have a strong city. Isaiah says, and God makes salvation, its walls and its ramparts. That is, He adorns the city with His salvation. And verse 4, therefore trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord Himself is the rock eternal. You see, not a something, but a someone. It's Him. You are not alone because the Lord eternal is with you, and He is a rock that you can depend on. Our trust is in Him, not in circumstances, not in walls and ramparts that we build, but only those that He does. It's in Him. It's in Jehovah, the God of the Bible. That's this enormous claim that Isaiah is making. And so, therefore, he says, we wait Not just for that day, but we wait for Him. The person of God, the Messiah, is coming. We wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you. You see, the the hope is not just in changed or better circumstances. We can pray for those things, of course. But ultimately, Isaiah is saying, our soul longs for you. Hope, you see, peace, you see, is relational. And he is saying, seat me again, seal me again into this relationship. Maintain my hope. And maintenance is difficulty. Maintenance is not fun. Ten years ago this month, the I-35 bridge in Minneapolis over I guess that's the Mississippi River, I'm not sure, but it collapsed, and 13 people were killed and 145 others were injured. And it wasn't from a flood, it wasn't from a tornado, it wasn't from a boat hitting one of the struts, it wasn't from Godzilla, but because of something very, very boring, and that's deferred maintenance. They weren't paying for the things to keep that bridge that was supposed to stand for hundreds of years. They weren't doing the basic maintenance on the nuts and the bolts and the stresses and all of that. And this tuned us into the fact that not just this bridge, but while our society is fascinated with new things and new technological, technological advances and innovation, that our bridges and our roadways and our ports and our subways, there was a story about this in the New York Times for the New York subway just this past week. These things that we use each and every day, the things that we don't get excited about, are falling apart in the richest country on earth because no one wants to pay the billions upon billions of dollars to just do basic maintenance. It doesn't pass bills. It doesn't cause people to rally in the streets. And so, therefore, we defer maintenance and things fall apart. Christianity is relational, and it, like every relationship, takes maintenance. 
These prophecies were meant to be read. Isaiah was meant to be read in public gatherings, in the synagogues, where Israel would gather together and the priest would stand up and just read for hours these texts. That's a lot more difficult than listening to one of my sermons, right? I hope. Hours upon hours of just reading the text because that was the only way that they would know what the text says. They didn't have Bibles that they could carry back to their tents and to their homes. And this is why when someone comes to faith here, we say, now the best thing that you can do is to be at worship each and every week for as long as you live. It sounds like a curse, but that is the way that you maintain this decision that you have made. One of the biggest stories in Christianity of the last five decades, and this trend likely isn't going to reverse anytime soon, is the percentage of people leaving Christianity as adults, the so-called, so-called duns. And part of this story is, of course, scandal in the church, people that have been harmed by church leaders, and children that are not equipped to answer the intellectual challenges when they leave the safety of the home and the plausibility structure of their home church and their family. And they get to biology 101 or whatever it is in college, and they're mystified. Why have I not been taught this? Why have I not thought about this before? But what I've seen so many times in the absence of those real challenges, that faith does tend to die more often just the slow death of inertia. It's not maintained. And Christianity, you see, is making these enormous claims, these totalizing claims upon your life and my life. And becoming a Christian or living into Christianity of your own decision, you're saying that I'm living by a contrary story. I'm living now by this future reality that is bleeding into the present. It is not just a set of concepts. It's not just a set of values or ethical norms. But it is a relationship that requires maintenance. And it's a relationship with a person. And for all of the terrible, destructive, legalistic reasons to go to church, this one remains. That longing for Him, longing for a person, rather than just better or changed circumstances, takes sustained effort. It takes being embodied and embedded in a countercultural community and a radical habit, habit of mind. To, to be able to say things like, my soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. This doesn't just happen. You don't just inherit that instinct and that habit upon becoming a Christian. It takes maintenance. It takes work. If you are struggling this morning with some of these concepts, I don't know why this is making so much noise, sorry. I'm OCD, I can't do it if it's not straight. (laughs) If you're struggling this morning with believing that reality and living by it, if your hope is dying, if you can't find peace in the midst of difficult circumstances, I want you to do something very simple this week. As I said, there's ways that you can use this service and use the bulletin for more than just this morning. Just 
take some time and read the book of Isaiah this week. Without a commentary, some of it's not going to make much sense, but most of it will. It's a fairly easy book of prophecy comparatively. It's 66 chapters, so it's a little bit long, but I believe in you. You can do it. Set apart 15, 20 minutes, and you'll be surprised by how far you get into it. And Isaiah is one of the nice prophets. He's not very mean. Some of the prophets you read, they can be very, you know, judgmental, and rightly so if you think about what was going on in Israel during the times that they were writing. But Isaiah is, is a nice prophet. He's got some difficult things to say, but for the most part, it is so that we can all begin to lose hope in false things. He's pointing to real hope and real comfort and real joy. And to do that, we have to turn away from the false ones, you see. It is a book of comfort. It is a book of peace. It's a book of hope. So, read a few chapters each day. Underline what stands out. Write questions mark, question marks. It's okay to write in your Bible. And stop and pray and ask God to meet you in this text. God, what do you want to say to me in this particular passage? Do it with a friend. You can do it online. Set up a chat and say, hey, how did Isaiah reading go today? What was stood out to you? What can I pray for you? And then show up week after week after week to do that relational maintenance. It takes time. Inertia sets in. It has in my life from time to time. So we got to do the maintenance. But as Ecclesiastes says, there's a time to build up, and there's also a time to tear down. And there's another part of this passage as we wrap up. Any time, as we said, you come across day of the Lord, underline it. Figure out what is it, refer- well, we know what it's referring to, but what is the author doing with it in this particular context? Another word is city. City is so important throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes it just means Jerusalem, the holy city. But sometimes the writers are using it to convey something much deeper, the concept that Jerusalem points to, the idea that it embodies. So when grasping for an idea that embodies completeness and peace and shalom, Isaiah chooses city. Did you see that? But the salvation that the city represents isn't its own walls, its ramparts, or its defensive structure, but it's the God who fortifies them. The city represents for Isaiah this salvation that is to come. But notice verse 5. There's two cities, not just one. In verse 5, he humbles those who dwell on high. He lays low the lofty city. This is a second city. What could it be referring to? Any Arrested Development fans here? Don't be shy. I'm re-watching it again with my boys, well, I'm rewatching it for myself, maybe the third or <clears throat> fourth time. Um, and one of the things that always amazes me is how they set up jokes many episodes ahead. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's from four episodes back. And they've perfected what's known as the callback. Callbacks to something, a joke that, was, that took shape in an earlier episode now shows up in a different context in a later one. Now, I don't know if Isaiah is telling a joke here or he's being humorous, but he is using irony. The lowly city is a callback to many places in the Old Testament, particularly back to Genesis 
11. Anyone know, want to know? Anyone want to take a guess? Genesis 11, what city? It's the tower, the tower of Babel. That's the, the lofty city. The tallest human city, you see, Isaiah is saying is actually the lowest because its height was a false hope. Now, we look at this story of the Tower of Babel, and we think, that is so absurd. What could these people be thinking? They're building a tower to God. Using ancient construction, they're going to build it so high that they can get to heaven, and it seems so absurd to build a tower to immortality, a tower to human achievement. But look at our cities, and what are the tallest buildings? What are they built to, monuments to? And if we're to look at our calendar, if we're to look at our task manager, if we could do a video capture of all the places that our minds go to, to look for hope, to find peace, would it look all that different than this Tower of Babel, a monument to human ingenuity? I can figure this out. I can do the job that I am required to do. My reputation our intelligence, our capacity for hard work, our goodness, our retirement accounts, if we have those things, our insurance policies. All of these things are good, but they're insufficient for the kind of hope that Isaiah is talking about because they're not him. They're some things, they're not someone, and they're also not from elsewhere. In fact, They're the things that literally everyone is looking to for hope. Isaiah says, in that day, He will come. The day of the Lord, when God's salvation would come in the form of Messiah, would be embodied, the one you see who does come from elsewhere. Hope, then, is not just an abstraction. It's not just a set of words on the page. It's not a mere prognostication about the future. It's embodied in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. And because He has come, Peter, the apostle, can say, praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from dead from the dead not just promises not mere words but a person an event that actually took place that Isaiah looked forward to and we look back to that holds the hope of that day and that day for Isaiah was the coming of the messiah we look back to the messiah that has come But in his death and in his resurrection, we see the coming of still yet another day, a future day, where death itself will die. And life eternal, joy eternal, hope eternal, peace eternal will be inaugurated and ushered in finally. And friends, that's ultimately our hope. Not in circumstances, but in that event And I pray that that will be our hope as a church and your hope even this week as we leave. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would guide us into that place of hope. And I pray that we would trust in you and not our own ingenuity and not our own efforts. But Father, inspire us also at the same time 
to walk towards you, to move towards you, to move in relationship with others who have hope, to be embedded in a community that is countercultural and moving towards hope that is not in things but in you. And Father, I pray that for this church, that we would look not to simply our financial resources or our numbers or the programs that we have, but that we would look to you being present in our midst and establishing the work of our hands. And for us and our families and our relationships and our dorm rooms and our places of work, let us be beacons of hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.